Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 92,000 Hours Podcast. Honestly, I was a little nervous heading into this episode, because in this one, I interviewed Dr. Michael Bassis. Michael is not only my former boss, but he's also a really important mentor in my life, and he and his wife, Mary, remain a part of my chosen family. He's also a pretty big deal. He was the 16th president of Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah. He also held presidencies at Olivet College in Michigan, New College in Florida, and was the provost of Antioch College in Ohio. He studied sociology at Brown University and received his PhD in sociology of education at the University of Chicago. He is an advocate for educational innovation and change, and I can personally vouch for his interest in challenging people to be and do their best. It was scary to be in a position to interview him, but it was also great because it gave me a chance to ask him questions I wouldn't have otherwise been able to. Today, we are talking about vision, what it is and what we can do to help ourselves see into the future and around corners, not just at work, but also in our lives. All right, so let's do this thing. Let's start with the first question that I always ask everyone. And I gave that you that question. Oh, that, that question? question. Yes. <laughs> so the question, if you remove things like work, school, research, uh, I'm going to say for you also like community engagement. Um, you know, it reminds sports. me, this question reminds me of the, the one that sometimes they ask in interviews that you need to get prepared for. You know, in interviews, they will ask you to talk about your strengths. But some interviews, they'll ask you, you know, Michael, we know about your strengths, but tell us about your weaknesses. Yeah. And so what are you going to say? You can't really tell them about a weakness. (laughs) (laughs) So I, (laughs) I used to say, if I were to ever get that question, I would tell them, oh, my weakness is I work too hard. That's what people tell me. <laughs> so it's not that's they wouldn't see that as a weakness. They would see that as something. Absolutely, we want to hire someone who works too hard. <laughs> anyway, so I sort of feel like I'm in that situation now. Uh, but I don't really have something that I'm super proud of. Uh, I don't think. Um, but um, one thing I think has stayed with me forever, and I feel good about it uh, is that I'm pretty honest. Uh, I tell the truth. Uh, I don't try to fool people. I don't try to uh, exaggerate. Uh, I don't cheat on my taxes. I mean, and uh, as a consequence, uh, I have no guilt about things I do. I mean, I've made mistakes, certainly, my fair share, maybe even more than my fair share. Um, And I try to learn from those, but uh, I don't look back and feel like I've done something bad. And I think it's because there's, I, I try to approach life honestly. Uh... Michael, I have a question about that. Do you think that you um, 
spend time intentionally thinking about that on being honest or no, never, or it just is natural. Never. I never think about it. That's why thinking about this question that you were, I had to, uh, I had to think a lot about uh, what is it that I carry around with me? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a part of me. But I think is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> smaller basket than what I carry around with me. That's so good. Uh, I had a, I spoke with a person that I know that uh, gave me this great, um, uh, this idea of uh, that we underneath it all, this is the, the, what you're carrying around with you. That's not always the good things. He was, he said, underneath it all, we're all like the little kid who has a little red wagon we're pulling behind us. And our red little red wagon is full of all of those hurts and all of those insecurities that started when we were little and they're piling up and we're just pulling that wagon along with us. Yeah. <laughs> so I always think about when somebody's talking to me at work and they're having difficulty, I think, all right, what's in their little red wagon that I should be paying attention to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I yeah. love that story about your honesty and I think it's real. Uh, and I think it goes along with, and I wonder how it's related to um, this idea of what we're talking about today, because when I gave you ideas of uh, subjects that you might be interested in talking about, you went, I would like to talk about vision. So what attracted you to that subject? Why is that the one that you thought you'd be interested in talking more about? Good question. Uh, I think it's because when I think about my work, uh, some of my biggest contributions at work have been uh, working to try to forge a vision for the college or university I'm affiliated with. Um, and I, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the schools I admire are the, the ones that do have a vision, uh, the ones that don't. Um, I find kind of boring. Hmm. Um, and it just seems like a natural, I don't know, it's just part of the way I think. Um, um, I think it's also true that um, in like le- what you're saying, leaders really are expected to come either with a vision or to further a vision that has already been established. Um, And so it naturally makes sense to talk about that. And I'm interested in just for listeners purposes, what, how do you, how do you define what vision is or, um, you know, what's the difference for a leader between mission and vision or, purpose like how do you you know how do you define those things differently and how has that happened for you personally Uh, I think they're all variations on a theme and it's the theme that's important an organization needs a direction it needs to aspire to some place uh, to go from where it is to someplace else, presumably a better place, a more secure place, um, a more 
whatever place. Um, and sometimes that's expressed in a mission statement. Sometimes it's expressed in a statement of purpose. Doesn't matter much where it's expressed. But I think it's important to express it and, that, and, to, and to keep it in the forefront of people's consciousness about the organization. Because if everybody knows what the direction is, then they've got an opportunity to help the, help the institution move in that direction. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what it is, how are you gonna help? <laughs> I was just listening to a podcast on a, on my drive here to California, where the person was saying that um, it, it was an organizational consultant talking about impact uh, players, people who make an impact in the places that they go, and it and they were talking directly about that. That everyone in basically every organization, people want to make an impact, but it's hard to know when or and if you don't have vision from your leader you don't know if what you want to jump in to do is actually going to make an impact and, and people deeply want that. Have you found right. that to be true? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, not, now, obviously not everybody. Yeah. There's a third of the people in any organization who are wandering around aimlessly and that's, that, that's what they want to do. And <laughs> you just pat them on the head and alone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think the majority of people certainly do want to help. They want to feel good about their participation. And if they understand the direction and they can buy into it, um, then they can play an important role. We, I was thinking about this as we, before we were going to talk, I thought back upon my own experiences with understanding vision and learning from you in a really important time in my uh, professional career. And I remember, and I think this is important because I remember your discussion about the vision. And I remember uh, the organization that we worked in going into a strategic planning process and having that strategic planning process be very collaborative, um, but really focusing first on what who, why, like, why do we exist? Um, I, and I, I guess from my perspective, I'm really interested, like, I have questions about, is that the appropriate place to start in your opinion? Would, would you still do it that way? How important is the collaboration? And, um, you know, how important is it to have buy-in and, and real life uh, understanding of the vision? I think it's because I worry so much about the vision being really located around, like in lots of organizations, it's in the leader's head and may not be well understood with everyone else. So I'm just interested in your position. I don't think there's any one size fits all. I think every situation is unique. I also think that, uh, let's assume you have, you're, you're creating a direction for an, institu uh, for an institution and you, involve people in the creation of that and they buy into it and they're part owners but then they retire and you recruit more people and they're not part of that process so it's almost like you need to reinvent 
every time. Yeah, nothing stays the same. Organizations are enormously dynamic and the world around them is changing. So it's a constant process of creation and recreation. Um, and it's ideal if you can get participants as part of that creative process. Um, but it's, it's sort of the, it's the art of managing an organization. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you're, I know that you have significant experience doing this and in several different university settings as the leader. And you gave me an opportunity to, to read an, uh, kind of an article, a reflection that you'd created where you really talked about the importance of being a maverick, or at least how you have really looked to your leadership vision in that way. So I'm interested in you talking a little bit about what is, what do you mean by being a maverick and like diving into some of the experiences that you've had in terms of establishing vision and, and that maverick sensibility in leadership. Well, let me talk about one of my presidencies where I think this is illustrated most clearly uh, and you'll be the judge about whether I'm being a maverick or not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was at Olivet College, where I became president in 1993. Olivet had just had a terrible racial incident on campus that tore the campus apart, got uh, put this tiny little congregational liberal arts college on a national spotlight. Um, it was so ironic for the it to happen there because Olivet had been founded by the same people who founded Oberlin College. So it was the second college in the country to be open to women and people of all races. Mm. Uh, this was in 1875. Wow. Um, so it had this wonderful legacy um, anyway, by the time I got there, the place was just demoralized. Half the board had resigned. Um, there was no faculty leadership. Uh, the in whole institution was in decay of some thing or other. It wasn't, so th this racial incident and the feelings that uh, it brought up on campus, which were not good ones, uh, it was only the tip of the iceberg. Hmm. So the first thing I did was call the faculty together. I arrived in the summer and called the faculty together. And I said, I need a day of your time early on. The only day we could find was Labor Day. So people left their families and came to the institution on Labor Day. And I said, uh, there's one central question that we've got to answer. And if we don't answer it, this institution is not going to survive for long. It's on its last legs. And the question is, given the range of alternatives open to them, why should a student choose to come to Olivet College? I mean, 
there probably is no more basic question. Um, well, uh, then I created, I mean, that was, it's like dropping a small bomb <laughs> in a large room. <laughs> because uh, I don't know what the faculty really expected. They expected I was going to lecture them or tell them what to do or whatever. Um, anyway, we ended up creating a process and uh, the focal point was this vision statement, uh, which started off by saying, uh, this institution is focused on individual and social responsibility. And uh, this individual and social responsibility was, I think, the perfect uh, formula I think for that institution really, at that particular time. That's really interesting because you started them with the big picture why. Like right off the bat, you were like, why? You did that. Exactly. Why, why should anybody be here? Why should people care? Exactly. We need a direction. Yeah. Uh, we need to define who we are. And then we have to create that. So, for example, uh, obviously, many meetings of all sorts of different kinds with involving faculty and staff and students. In the spring, people uh, started to say, well, what is this individual and social responsibility? So I gathered the whole campus together in the gymnasium now with for a day. Students, with the everybody's there. And we decided what we were gonna do is to develop what we call a campus compact. We were gonna specify what it is we meant by individual and social responsibility. So we ended up with eight, uh, seven statements which are still featured prominently at the institution 30 years later Awesome. as their campus compact. That's awesome. What a legacy. Uh, I'm responsible for my own learning and personal development. I am responsible for contributing to the learning of others. Uh, I'm responsible for the quality of the physical environment. I'm responsible for treating all people with respect responsible for behaving and communicating with honesty and integrity. Uh, I'm responsible for the development and growth of Olivet College. Students, faculty, staff, there's a ceremony where when entering students arrive in the fall, uh, officers in the senior class present them with this scroll hmm. with a compact. It's, wow. it's a, uh, it's a ceremony designed to uh, pass on the responsibility of being a member of this community uh, that knows what it's about. Now, is that story I've told you uh, the story of a maverick? Maybe especially and the part i really like about that is um if the if the idea of a maverick is uh, an individual who understands what conventional wisdom is 
but makes their own decisions and their own choices anyway, I feel like you could have gone into that Olivet situation focused on the problem. Like here's the specific problem and the one that you have to fix, which in some ways makes me think like I'm learning something from this because it's in some ways it makes me think that we do that all the time. Like here's a big problem. We need to solve it. But really the problem might be bigger than that. And this is just a symptom of a bigger problem. And by, by working on that particular problem, we might be emphasizing something that may not be the thing that we need to work on. Yeah. And, and I think we even do that. Like organizationally, I can think of it right now in my life, as well as even in our personal lives, like in my, in my life life, I might be focusing on a particular problem that I think I need to fix, but I actually need to have a broader vision and be thinking a little bit differently about what the actual problem is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that uh, the whole is often greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a basic lesson that comes out of my discipline, sociology. Um, and you can see it clearly in families. You can see it clearly in organizations of all types. Uh, you've got lots of different pieces. Uh, but there is something about the whole that's encompassed in the culture, the norms, the values, uh, the collective wisdom of the place. Uh, that's enormously important and uh, could be described as the, as the most important asset uh, of, a, uh, of a unit, social unit. I just um, had a conversation for this podcast last week that was about uh, organizational culture. And we talked about the whole like iceberg model of culture that here the artifacts are the things that you can see at the top of the iceberg, which are the vision statement or the, you know, um, core values that have been established, but underneath and especially really lower underneath like the murky depths are things like unstated assumptions that people are making or um, or judgments that are being made or the other or cultural norms that are happening in communities that are coming into the organization um, that occur. And I just think that just bringing all of that together as well as with the vision, I'm interested in just your experience of how difficult understanding all of that can be for a leader and particularly a new leader, I would imagine having, I mean, I wonder if it's easier if you're the new leader or if you're already there and understand what some of those assumptions are. Oh, you probably remember my saying on more than one occasion, there are two types of people in the world. There are lumpers and splitters. (laughs) I'm a lumper. Uh, the way I look at the world is I see lots of different pieces and I try to see patterns and relationships. There are other people who see uh, something in their world and they want to break it down into its components and 
analyze deeper and deeper and deeper. They dig a narrow trench uh, and see how deep they can get it. Um, those are the splitters. <laughs> and I'm not saying one is better than the other. The world probably needs both kinds of people. Um, but I think it's only the lumpers that, uh, that um, think about things like, where is this direction? Where is this institution headed? Where is this family headed? Uh, what holds it together? Uh, what pieces do we need to nurture? What are the patterns I'm seeing that could result in something bigger down the road? Right, right. <laughs> well, I remember in one of the discussions we had, uh, you and I hope that I don't throw you off here, but I, I remember the discussion about the when you introduced me to the sigmoid curve, and it's been really significant for me ever since then. Um, uh, with the whole idea, I mean, underneath it is the whole idea that it's based on mathematics, right? But it also applies to organizations, um, all sorts of organizations that the whole S curve means that you should, even when you're successful, you should still be thinking about the next step because eventually all successful things. And I, I often joke about this with families as well, where I'm like, even every great marriage has points where it's going to go down. Every organization has points where it's going to go back down again. And the idea is to start your new S before it starts to decrease again. Um, because it's, much more difficult uh, to change a pattern when it's in decline. Um, you're running out of money, people are demoralized. Uh, although I must admit, it's not easy to change it when it's ascending <laughs> because people say, why did we need to change? The world will always be like this. Don't fix it, it's not broken. We just keep going in this direction. Yeah. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. I'm successful. Why are you driving me crazy? <laughs> how can how can a, a leader, I, I, I do think that that is one of the more important aspects. It's like the, I feel like the really thinking on that S curve can help leaders be thinking about how to look around corners. When, like your vision has to show you how to see what's coming around that next corner. Yeah, I think I used to say to myself that uh, at least half of my my time ought to be spent looking over the horizon uh, because that's if I don't do it, who is going to do it? Yeah, and it's what's over the horizon that's important. As time passes, the organization matures, and if you don't anticipate those things. Again, easier said than done. I mean, uh, I had this all figured out and we were just on a roll in every, uh, at Westminster and uh, asking all the right questions and coming up with really good answers. And, um, and I had convinced myself that this was uh, solid enough that I could walk away and it would continue. 
and it turned out to be paper thin. I walked away and it all disappeared. So while I feel really good about lots of the contributions I made to, to Westminster, enrollment, the buildings, the new programs, the finances, fundraising. Uh, in terms of the work I really wanted to do, which was uh, a set of vision for the institution that it would then follow, it was a dismal failure. How can leaders, how do you respond to that or, or deal with that when you're like, this is the vision I set now I'm leaving. I think that's something that leaders have to worry about all the time. And whether you're leading a big organization like a university or a department, right? Like people who have, or their team of five people they lead, like this is the vision. This is the direction we're going in. I'm going to feel safe that I can go over here now. How do you deal with that? Well, oh, wait, now it's all changed. <laughs> the, the irony is that universities are lousy at it. Um, Corporations are great at it. And Tell me about it that has, more. Why do you think that is? A lot of it has to do with their traditions of succession. What happens to the CEO of a corporation when they decide to retire? They have a seat on the board. Oftentimes they're the board chair. Mm. Uh, they, they plan succession to keep ideas alive. Universities, when a president leaves, the tradition is that person will never have uh, any more influence on this campus because a new person has taken over and we need to give them space to do their thing. And so there's this, uh, you go from leadership to, uh, uh, I mean, the whole thing stops. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that what we do in universities with, especially with presidencies is we deal in polarities, like whoever, whatever was the single most, uh, either interesting or, or present characteristic of the outgoing leader, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to find that the president, the incoming leader is the opposite of whatever that was. <laughs> but I do want to talk a little bit about in terms of the importance of vision and, and um, how to make sure it is deep and integrated into the organization. How important is it for the leader to have a team working on it with them? Like what, what have been your experiences with that in terms of your ability to move your vision forward? Uh, yeah, essential. I mean, because your team touches the rest of the institution in ways that you never can. Um, if your team is bought into the vision and understands it, I mean, half of my job was to educate every week all the people that reported to me, all the people on this administrative council, uh, 
And you remember, I used to go on and on about one aspect of this or another, probably boring people to tears, but uh, I figured you guys had to know it almost as deeply as I did in order to be able to teach all the people you worked with. And I think we were largely successful in that. Yeah, uh, I think so too. Mr. I think so too. I would say the same thing uh, about Olivet. I had awesome. a good team. I did the same thing. Spent every week teaching them about where we were headed and how we were going to get there. And incorporating their ideas in it as well. And there were always good ones. Um, How much time do you think you spent doing that work? I feel like that is something that most, most of us don't experience in our workspaces. Um, often we're focused in our weekly meetings in, you know, I'm now working at a place that is both academic, but also uh uh, ed tech, right? Like having all this, like it's, it's a tech company that is also a, a, a university. And, um, I think that there is a lot of like, what's agile, what do, how do we like make, make, how, how we make decisions and, and, um, how are we efficient? A lot of the how is talked about a lot, but I, I do think that if we took that and focused on why even more, um, it would be even stronger. And I think I didn't realize how important it was to be in a situation in which uh, the whole leadership team felt really solid. And like, we knew, like we knew where the horizon was and that we also kind of operated in that, um, this sounds silly, but like, you know, like the geese flying towards someplace, like you're trying to get someplace, but we all kind of, there were different times when somebody else was the front, was at the front of that triangle of the geese flying so that we could, you know, take the headwinds for a minute and then let somebody else take the headwinds until, so we could get, like in some ways, I think that's actually what gets you there faster than all this time spent on efficiency, but really taking turns, making sure that you're getting us in that direction and celebrating the person that was just at the head. Does that make sense? Sure. But I think that is really hard to do. Well, it seems to me that Western governors, uh, the direction is pretty easy to talk about. Um, and it can be, it, it can be pretty inspiring. Oh yeah. Um, and so maybe that's the reason why they don't talk about it as much is because it's obvious. Yeah, I think that people they somehow assume that we know it that you know it and and it's driving your day-to-day decisions uh yeah and i think that's absolutely true so and and that's been lovely this whole idea of you know a whole system of higher ed that is mostly built for the you know, 17 to 24 year old age group, mostly. Um, and 
that I now work at a place that is built on where actually the majority of people get an education is as adults um, and helping uh, to make that accessible for everyone because you know that that underlying everyone is entitled to a good education is something that's deeply held at WG. But also willing to change to challenge uh, a lot of contemporary wisdom in higher education. Yeah. Uh, wisdom that is really outmoded, um, doesn't work anymore, um, but that it is so difficult to change. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that I just love hearing people be fully themselves and bring their varied interests and perspectives to all aspects of their lives. Well, Michael Bassis has recently done just that by pursuing his dream of being an artist. You can view it at michaelbassis.com. And if I can just quote from that website here, this is what he says. Whenever anyone asked what I planned to do in retirement, I always thought to myself, and sometimes admitted out loud, that I would spend my time making art. It didn't go so well at first. <laughs> what a great quote. Love the sentiment and the honesty. I hope you'll check out his art. It really did go well in the end. Until then, though, let's get back to the interview. Do you have any advice for people who might be listening to this who say, well, I'm not a leader of a university or of a whole organization. What do you think about the importance of having vision for ourselves or our own lives? Do you have any advice for people who may not be the leader with the vision, but they're a human being? What does vision mean for them? Well, you know, there always is the capacity to ask questions, which I think is uh, an underutilized capacity. And you can be a staff person in a large office uh, and make enormous contributions to vision by just asking the right question at the right time. Um, you know, it could be as direct as, you know, uh, could you explain to me again why we're doing this or how this fits with something else? And um, I so. love that you're saying that, Michael. I was just thinking about, uh, I had a conversation with somebody recently who they said, what do you wish that you had from this person? Because I was struggling uh, at work and I was talking to an organizational coach who said, well, then if you could have anything, what would you want? And I think this is real. I because both whether it's from my the person who leads me or the people whom I lead, I would love that honestly curious question. Like I just would love to have more curiosity about the why we're doing this. I think that sometimes it feels frustrating to have people ask you about why because you just want to get to the yeah I talked about why here's what and how. But I do think that being reminded and required to regularly articulate your why and what the vision is, is really helpful. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there aren't very many people who staff people uh, who are occupying a relatively powerless position who 
ask that question, but they could if they, I mean, if someone who's looking to develop some leadership capacity or participation, um, um, as a leader though, getting, trying to motivate people like that to ask the right questions, to, to want to find ways to roll up their sleeves and really make a contribution. Uh, maybe it comes down to just the basic notion that uh, organizations are successful be, uh, through people. Mm. And the more you can do to get more people rowing the boat in the same direction with some enthusiasm. And so that's our job is to uh, cultivate that kind of a culture, uh, to work every day, to uh, identify those people and to encourage them and to help them find a way uh, you know, that's the job of, of a leader. I love that. I, I like, I think that's the quote. I think that's the thing that we, that's our job. And that's what we all want from our leaders as somebody that is doing that for us. And it reminds me of a time that I specifically remember that you were speaking to the board of trustees. You're at the front of the room speaking to the board of trustees. And after the board meeting, you mentioned to me that one of your chief deputy type people, one of the individuals was in the room in the, you know, not a board member, but in the room looking at you and you could see his face, not agreeing with what you were doing or saying. And your response to me for that was how much you loved that. <laughs> your response was he wouldn't do this the same way as me that basically the two of you agreed on the vision or the direction, but he wouldn't do this the same way. And that's okay because it's helping him develop his own leadership style, his own ideas of how to move in that direction. And that was a good thing. Can you describe um, what that's, I think that is a, I think that is an, an unusual thing for a leader to do. And it's one of those moments that stuck in my head, like, like I can be there any, any moment because it was so seminally important to me in terms of my own leadership learning. Well, it's also, it, dissent is also helpful for the leader um, because it forces you to, to submit your idea to a sterner test, somebody, uh, whose talent, you admire who's got another way to think about it or another idea about it or whatever. Um, and uh, who knows, you might even learn something and change your mind, which is, which is terrific. Uh, uh, well, one thing, and that is this uh, Charles Handy story about the Irishman. Oh, what? Tell me about this. What's the Irishman no, story? No, you remember it. 
Uh, what? It's from his book, The Age of Paradox, which is the same book where he has a chapter on the sigmoid curve. Mm. As a matter of fact, uh, you should get your own copy of The Age of Paradox by Charles Handy. Okay. Uh, anyway, he talks about, this is about vision and, and about how uh, looking ahead is difficult. Uh, and if you want to know how to proceed, looking backward at what you've done isn't going to help at all. Hmm. And he illustrates that by this simple little story about a guy who goes to Ireland looking for some place or some family. Uh, and he meets an Irishman along the way and asks for directions to this place. And the Irishman, he says, oh yes, he says, I know where it is. Uh, he goes straight up the road, headed for Davies Bar. And you'll cross a bridge, but continue straight ahead. And then about a mile before you get there, take the road to the right. <laughs> now, some people who don't think hard enough, I think that's fine advice. But you can't get there by following that advice <laughs> because that's looking backward. You can't use it to look forward. Uh, so I oftentimes think about how am I going to get to Davies Bar? <laughs> but uh, let me say one other thing about um, conventional wisdom and um, and how entrenched it is, um, especially in higher education. And again, you've heard me rail about these things before, but uh, uh, university instruction continues to be dominated by lectures, even in relatively small classes. A faculty member stands up and gives a five-minute lecture, a 10-minute lecture, a 20-minute lecture, a 50-minute lecture to a bunch of students. It's a practice that started in the fifth century. There are just decades upon decades of research that talks about how um, ineffective that is as a method of instruction, yet it continues to be the dominant one. Doesn't make any sense. Here's an even more challenging one. Grades, we give out grades to students in school. Why? Because we've always done it and people believe in it and everybody wants high grades. <clears throat> but there's absolutely no evidence uh, that the grades you get in school are related in any way to any future measure of success or happiness. Um, but it, 
continues to be the currency. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, it, it's a, we're, we're organizing a system of higher education on myth. And that's one of the reasons why the, the higher education is in such trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, lousy outcomes, uh, high expenses. Um, and as my, uh, the leaders in my organization, they actually talk about this. What we should not be doing is putting more money to the same old problems. Let's instead of making up, this is an interesting uh, question for you, Michael, is the question we have is, um, should we make it free for people or should we change the system? Should we be investing in changing the system itself so that it's more about like we would think at WGU competency, can you do it or not? <laughs> um, accessibility what how do you make it available at high quality to as many people as you possibly can yeah yeah uh, certainly just making it free it's, it seems to me to be silly uh, one of the uh, one of the ideas about reforming higher education that I first fell in love with was again by a sociologist at Northwestern named Howard Becker. Uh, he said, the way to reform higher ed is to um, uh, give students the degree the day they arrive as freshmen and then force them to leave four years later. <laughs> so what they left with uh, would be differentiated by their effort, yeah. how much they had decided to learn. Wow. Rather than some standard piece of paper that uh, that was that didn't have that doesn't have any meaning. Wow. How it much have, we do that is based upon we've always done it that way is hard to even think about because it's like we've just been swimming in these waters for so long we haven't considered what the waters are made of. Right. And of all the institutions that have tried to break the mold and have made some real progress, Western governors is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So you should you should feel really good about that. Yeah, absolutely. Not that you can take credit to, for it, but yeah, I, I don't get to take any credit for it, but I do get to know that I'm working in a place that that um, almost is a like innovation is a prerequisite for one for wanting to be there. Yeah. It's, it's it's you know part that is part of the vision and the and the yeah. culture. So, so one last thing I want to ask you. Um, I talk here in this podcast all the time about my love of mentors and the idea of having mentors in your life, um, whether they are formal or informal, whether the mentor knows that they're a mentor to you or not. Um, so I would love if you would be willing to tell me about a mentor that you have had in your life or that you would like to call out or to, um, mention here. 
Sure. Uh, I've only had one. Uh, and uh, I didn't uh, discover him until uh, I'm still in early, early in my career, but it's Al Guskin, who had been president at, uh, he had been chancellor at the University of Wisconsin Parkside when I was hired as associate dean of faculty. Uh, one of the things that came along with that position is that I was a member of the administrative council. Uh, six of us who met with the chancellor every week for, I don't know, three or four hours, you know, like our administrative and that was a, uh, an enormous education for me at, uh, as a, which was really in my first administrative appointment uh, to sitting at that table where all of the strategic and operational issues of the affected the institution uh, were discussed. And Al and I've uh, developed over time a really, uh, deep relationship uh, that continued throughout the rest of my career. I have uh, enormous admiration for him. He went to become president of Antioch. I left to become academic vice president at Eastern Connecticut. Um, I clashed with a new president there who fired me. Uh, Al went through a divorce. We talked on the phone. I said, I'm coming out. I'll give you marriage counseling if you give me career counseling. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we spent a very long weekend together. <laughs> uh, uh, about a month later, I was in a meeting in Washington, D.C. Um, Mary was upstairs in the hotel room. She came down and said, Alex, on the phone. I said, oh, good, I'll call him back, tell him this is important. And she said, no, Mike, Michael, he really wants to talk to you. She said, it's important, you gotta come now. I started to argue with Mary about what I was gonna go upstairs. <laughs> she said, Michael, I think he's really serious. So then I started to worry, something was... So I went upstairs, he says, Al, Al says to me, Michael, sit down. I said, Al, I'm in a meeting. What do you need? I've got to run back down. He says, Michael, sit. He proceeded to read me the announcement of my appointment oh. as executive vice president and university provost at Antioch. Oh, my goodness. He said, I need you here. I just had a meeting with the board of trustees. They said, Al, it's Christmas time. Tell us what you need. We'll give you anything you need. And he said, I know who I want to hire. And I'll hire Michael Bassus and get him here as quick as I can. Wow. And so we worked together at Antioch for four years, five years, maybe. Uh, and he's been a mentor throughout all the presidencies that I've had. And, and we're still in touch today. He's in his mid-80s. I love that. I love that story. Aren't we, aren't you lucky to have a person that you got to know in that way that was both your mentor, but then remained your friend for the rest of your life. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me today, right before a holiday. And, and when I know you're busy and um, 
I'm really grateful. It's so much fun. Well, it feels like uh, lots of conversations that you and I have had over the years. Yeah. Uh, more often than not with a gin and tonic in front of us. <laughs> than, That's true. Than, Do you have one right now? Other than a glass of water. <laughs> My thanks to Dr. Michael Bassis for sharing his experience, depth, and passion for pursuing the best in ourselves, our organizations, and our societies. You can connect with him on LinkedIn and view his art at michaelbassis.com. Next week, we will have what we hope will be an annual tradition, a group interview with friends of the podcast, reminding us all of what we are grateful for in 2021 and what we can look forward to in 2022. I hope you'll join us.